uh, together. If you're a guest here, you're so welcome. Please fill in one of our connect forms. If you're with us on, online, we're really glad you're here. May the Lord speak to you today as well. Please do send us a message. Drop us a DM or, or email uh, through the church website. We'd love to, to keep in touch with you and let you know how you can grow. Um, we're, we're probably two-thirds of the way through the, the latest Alpha. The team are doing so well with the Alpha course. Alpha is a great way for people who are not yet followers of Jesus or are just taking their first steps to begin to, uh, to, to grow. And I think we've probably seen three or four uh, people uh, taking their first steps in following Jesus and responding to the gospel on this Alpha. So that's, that's, there we are. Good news. No golf. That's good. But praise God. And uh, we're just praying for each of those uh, men, and precious men and women that are doing, doing the Alpha right now. Okay, we're in our Dynasty series, uh, looking at the life of David and how we grow the next generation as a kingdom family. Um, and uh, let me just start. This is not in the Bible, by the way, if you're looking for it. Um, but one of the most famous scenes in history, uh, it's almost the Ides of March now. I think it was around the 14th, 15th of March, the Ides of March. Anyone know where I'm going? 44 BC, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Here we go. Utter bewilderment flashed across Julius Caesar's face. This is violence. He was trapped. He couldn't get up. Blinding pain. Daggers. Blood everywhere. Faces coming closer. The knives rising and falling. Familiar faces. Men he trusted and known for years. Their eyes now hard. And then to his relief he saw Brutus. Good old Brutus. But Brutus's eyes were hollow. And in his hand... Another knife. Etu, Brutus, Caesar said, disbelieving. You too, my boy. Wow, what a scene that is. I could carry on, but I don't want to spoil the story for you if you don't know the, the history. T today, in a sense, and, and actually each week as we look at this life of David and Saul and those around him who should have known better, is really how not to release the next generation. I think in, in that scene with Brutus and with Julius Caesar, we see that and we think, oh, that's history. But honestly, we see the same spirit today in boardrooms. Uh, if you've watched any of our government shenanigans of the last year or so, you see see the same spirit. We see it in offices. We find it in school staff rooms. We find it in competitive sports teams. And yes, we find it even in churches, even churches like ours, even in ministries like yours and mine that we operate in. And today and in these weeks when I'm on my feet, we're looking at our prophetic call to grow a kingdom family into the next generation. We're talking about a totally different spirit. We're talking about raising sons and daughters. We're talking about living and growing as spiritual mothers and fathers. Or if you want the language of my youth, good old fashion church aunties and uncles. Um, and uh, last time when I was up on my feet, we looked at young David being secretly anointed. The Holy Spirit lifted off King Saul, although he's still king. It came upon David. He fights Goliath, uh, but he wasn't nurtured and received by those around him. Today, I just want us to carry on in this story. We'll look at the attitude of Saul and perhaps the contrasting attitude of Jesus and his disciples that we can learn from. Uh, and maybe before we break bread, look at some of their mindsets and the attitude of, of young David. Does that sound okay? Are you with me? Okay, he's still in Brutus and Julius Caesar. Tell me to 1 Samuel 18. 
Those of you who speak Persian, I think you've got a sheet of it and some Spanish-speaking guys, you've got the sheets with that on as well. There's some Ukrainian ones down here if anyone needs, needs that. Uh, if you want English, I'm going to read it now. I'm just going to pick up at verse 5 of 1 Samuel uh, 18. We'll ha- I'm going to handle uh, Jonathan and, and David separately uh, next week. Uh, verse 5 of 1 Samuel 18. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. And they danced and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. Uh, This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Wouldn't you like that to be written over your life? Wow, the Lord, the Lord is with you. The, David said in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's a promise we hold as well, isn't it? I, I'm not going to preach that now, but it's just worth stopping and pausing and noting that promise over our lives. The Lord is with you. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I won't leave you alone as orphans. This, this, uh, this life of David is now ours in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? You don't have to say, I hope the Lord is with me. Jesus says, I am with you. I will not leave you alone. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Just speak that over yourself for a moment while I carry on. Wow. Uh, Verse 17. Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family? Or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law. So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given in marriage to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola instead. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with, big shout out for all the Michaels in the room today. We, we've got one, by the way, that's why I did that. Um, She was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him. And so the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king's pleased with you. And his attendants, all like you, now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, do you think it's a small matter? to become the king's son-in-law. I'm only a poor man and little known. When David's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall into the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Yet different times, okay? 
He brought, uh, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, in marriage. It wasn't like that with Ben and I when he came to ask me about Daisy. Thankfully. <laughs> we, we praise God for the new covenant. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success and the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Then Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding. Stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and I'll I'll tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wronged you. What's he done? um, He's benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him again to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment, and put some goat's hair at the head. And Saul sent the men to capture David. Michael said, he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me, to his bed, that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me? Like this, and send my enemy away so that he escaped. Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? And when David fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Well, it's a long section of scripture, but I just wanted us to get uh, uh, the the picture of the story this morning. Um, And I want to ask us, and I, I speak to myself. About the mindset of Saul, do we see any trace of it in our teams, in our ministry, in our church? Maybe in your family life, maybe in your workplace, so far as you can influence. Let's just look for a few moments at the mindset of Saul. Saul's lost his spiritual authority, um, so much so that his attitudes have hardened and has allowed room for a demonic spirit to take root and become a stronghold. It's really hard um, to serve a leader with integrity when you know that they're not serving the purpose of God themselves, when they're just filling the seat, um, when the Spirit is on you, but he's not on those around you. Um, where you see that in churches with established leaders, or where you find it in, in, in business, 
Um, such leaders will use fear, manipulation, control, anything they can to prevent the emergence of others. Such people fear the gift and the call uh, of the young anointed Davids, as it were. Um, they refuse to make room. They can be blockers against the next generation coming through. Or even worse, in this case, Saul is not just a blocker. He is actively against. I wonder for us, how can we learn not to carry the spirit of Saul, to catch the godly heart of David in the way he continues to honor God and honor the king? On the surface, it looks okay. Saul makes room. He promotes David. He, he does all the kind of uh, the public stuff really well, the externals really well. But his heart is an absolute mess, as we've seen. Look at verse 5. David's success is good in the sight of all the people, chapter 18, and all of Saul's servants. So everyone is saying, this is the guy we just recognize. It's obvious. Can't you see? It's really obvious. The Holy Spirit's on him. God's hands on him. But it's not obvious with Saul. He's the one who should have been David's biggest cheerleader. Verse 8 of chapter 18, Saul's angry with David. It says he has a jealous eye on him. Wow, jealousy opens a door to all kinds of uh, ugly stuff growing in our hearts and all kinds of opportunities for demonic oppression to take root. And we see then in Saul this descent, anger, jealousy, um, attitudes of heart without repentance that bring him under real demonic control. Um, he's afraid of David, verse 12. He sends him away, verse 13. And, and, and for Saul, I think it's a real spirit of rejection. In verse 12, it tells us Saul knows he has been rejected as king. He knows the Holy Spirit has lifted off him. He knows that the Spirit has come upon David. He knows the hearts of the people are with David. Even some of his own children, Jonathan and his daughter Michael, they've given their hearts to David. They love him. And Saul is feeling the rejection of that that's being fueled by the demonic. You may have observed in your own life, but leaders who carry rejection are pretty impossible to work with and to be around. Those who lead with leaders who struggle with rejection, you have to tiptoe uh, around them. You're trying to keep them happy all the time. You're watching out for their mood swings. One minute you're their favorite and they're shouting your praise. The next minute they're chucking a spear at you. Uh, they're tearing you down with their words. They're pushing you away. They're getting in your way. They're, they're suddenly freezing you out and favoring others. With such people, under such a mindset and a spirit, there is always manipulation and control. You, you see it so clearly here in the life of Saul. Even in that weird marriage offer to his first daughter. So manipulative there. Uh, and, and then manipulative with the marriage to Michael. Later in those, those apparent, those, those kind of skin-deep reconciliations with David. He, he says to his son Jonathan, in God, he uses God's name, he makes an oath. In God's name, I'll, I won't put David to death. Three verses later, he's hurling a spear at David so hard, it, it pins into the wall. This is crazy. It's the heart of, of Saul. And you see the way that, other, are you with me still? Is, is it just me that's observed this at times around my life? Or are some of you aware of it too? We see the way that others have to behave around a controlling leader like Saul who carries rejection. For David, there's a, it's a beautiful deep humility that we see. Verse 18, who am I to be son-in-law to the king? Often around those such controlling leaders, there's almost a, a need to be over-honoring uh, just to try and keep the guy happy, super careful. Uh, I'm not sure whether he's going to promote me as he calls me before him or whether he's going to pin me to the wall with a spear. So I, I would just be over-honoring of him. And look at the relationship Saul has with his son, Jonathan. What a distortion 
of a father-son relationship. Jonathan has learned, he's like the carer to his dad. He's learned to man, he's got more maturity than his father, the king. He's learned to manage the mood swings and the lies. Know when dad's in a good mood and you can come to him for a favor. Know when you should leave him alone. If some of you recognize that in your own family life, maybe. That weird interaction at the start of chapter 19 where he's saying, look, I'll go, I'll go see dad. I'll, get, I'll stand before him. I don't think he'll throw a spear at me. Um, and I'll find out for you. It just comes between David and Saul because he knows how abusive Saul is in his manipulation. The relationship with Saul and his daughter, Michael. Hey, fathers, daughters, how's your relationship with the precious little girls that God's given you? Michael ends up lying to her dad, um, lying to her dad's men, then lying to Saul. That, that is not a normal relationship. I mean, every teenager lies to their parents. See, I, was in, I was in bed. Um, yeah, I was staying at a friend's house, all that kind of stuff. That, that's relatively normal, though it, it's not good. And please don't do it if you're a teenager here listening. But this is a whole different level. She, she should be able to say, hey, my husband is not your enemy. He's your son-in-law. You gave him to me. Um, she wants to protect David. It's okay for her to say that, those things. I love David, but she lives in this culture of bitterness and rejection. You see how it can affect a family life. We know how it can affect a church. I wonder if you often find yourself apologizing, running around, kind of clearing up for someone else's harm and mess. Oh, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just the way they are. They don't mean anything by it. Or oh, they're going through some stuff. Yeah, all of that may be true, but it's sinful and it's destructive in a kingdom family. There's no room for it in the life of God's people. Even Saul's men, his, his leadership team, if you like. And again, we see this so often in church life. That, that, that little section, verse 22 of uh, chapter 18, carrying Saul's messages. They get caught between, again, so often you see leaderships under the control of a kind of heavy, destructive senior leader. They race around doing the leader's dirty work, clearing up his mess, uh, trying to put things right. Um, or they've been so kind of soaked in this culture that they just sow the same kind of gossip and the same control that they've seen modeled. That's how regimes work. There's no room for it in the kingdom of God. It's really terrible, isn't it? When Happy message this morning. Anyone enjoying the message so far? We started with the stabbing of Julius Caesar, and it's, uh, it's really hard to hear, isn't it? But we just want our hearts open to what the Lord's able to do. Um, when, when the family, when the next generation have to live like, like this around leaders, around authority figures, around parents, learning what to say, just judging. I won't give too much information away. I don't want to trigger a response. I'll just hold some things back. This whole environment becomes toxic around the court of Saul, totally controlling, no trust. And in the end, that kind of culture wins. It becomes the defining culture. Everyone ends up behaving that way, one way or the other. We, we see it so often in church life. Um, but I just want to say again this morning, this is not what we're building in this kingdom family. I was saying to Mark and Julie earlier this morning, I think seven years ago, we preached here a cultures series on kingdom culture. And you could think as a pastor, part of the team here, oh, we've taught on that. The church know that stuff. But it was seven years ago. And, and kind of in this kingdom family series, in a sense, we're relaying some of those foundations um, right now. We, we made some agreements. They're, they're stuck up on posters in the, in the office, in the admin office there. We should share them around again. We, we said things like, we're going to love one another. We're going to be truthful. We're going to honestly accept one another. 
We're, we're going to be generously hearted towards, towards each other. We're going to have a culture of encouragement and a culture of honoring. We're, we're going to have a family life where people can aspire to leadership and even make mistakes and not get knocked down. That's who we are in this house as a kingdom family. Let me hear it. There was a half an amen. Well done. Saul's mindset, though, shows this deep insecurity of hearts and this demonic spirit that becomes a stronghold. You know, even like that, those kinds of leaders can be brilliant. They can have moments in God. Saul was prophesying in this passage, even in these conditions. Um, they can have success, but under the surface, as we said earlier, their own hearts can be chaotic, bitter. And there's, you look behind for the fruit in their lives. There's a trail of broken, beaten up people around them. Or they're just surrounded by yes men and yes women in the end. Such people that struggle with rejection will often break off relationships rather than work things out. They'll cause a blow up because in their heart they think they're going to be rejected anyway. I'm so grateful that we come to Jesus, the healer of all our broken, wounded hearts. Um, these kinds of hearts, they need, they need repentance for sure. Um, sometimes they need setting free. Uh, particularly where there's demonic oppression. They certainly need healing. Sometimes we need that in families as we pray together with a family. Sometimes churches need healing in that way. But we come to Jesus. Jesus is described by the prophet Isaiah as the one who was despised and rejected. If you struggle with rejection this morning, you have a Savior who died on the cross in order to heal you and set you free uh, from any rejection that is rooted in your heart. We'll, we'll come to how Jesus leads his brothers and sisters in a moment. So I, th I think it's just worth noting Saul's demonic descent. Just two chapters here. And he goes from anger and jealousy with David to uh, outright ordering his death, to telling his son Jonathan, the best friend of David, I want you to kill David, destroying trust in his own family and his own leadership. You may not see yourself. You may say this is an extreme story. Um, but uh, I think the heart attitudes are the same, aren't they? It's the same spirit behind, the same destruction that's at work. You may not bring a, a spear to your team meeting at work on a Monday or to your church ministry team. Um, you may not be planning a hit on someone, but our hearts can be full of judgment. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's the same spirit behind. Honestly, we've all thrown spears at some point or had them thrown at us. Here's a list of depressing things that put spears in our hands or in our hearts. Jealousy, missed opportunities, guilt and shame for my own mistakes, deep regrets, bitterness, feelings of being overlooked, being bypassed by the next generation. If you're one of those that's looking back all the time, nostalgically trying to get life or ministry back to how things were, the next generation will always be a threat to you. At times, maybe we've all been involved in sowing confusion and cynicism with our words with our attitudes, sometimes even with venom. I remember when Jude was um, a young teenager, we went to his school sports day and, uh, and we were walking around the various events on the school field, different sports disciplines, and about maybe 20, 30 parents were waiting, watching for the javelin to start. And we, we were stood safely behind the, the, the rope uh, as they were throwing the javelin away from us. And uh, as we stood behind the rope to watch the first young man come to throw the javelin, he pulled his arm back with a mighty thrust ready for momentum. But as he pulled his arm back, he released the javelin out the back of his hand. 
and it flew over us as parents. Everyone ducked and dived to the floor. There was this, whoa, uh, and then some nervous giggling afterwards. And uh, a teacher went and retrieved a sharp, pointy metal javelin, went to the sports cupboard and pulled out a thick plastic one with a blunt end and gave that to the next child. And we all la laughed nervously and carried on chewing the javelin. I don't know how it's been in your life, in your experience of throwing spears. There are some people who are dangerous around church life. They are wolves. And uh, as elders, it's our responsibility to watch out for them. There are people that deliberately target people and they want to destroy you. And there's a demonic spirit behind that. But there are plenty of us in church life just because of our hurts and our woundedness of heart that we carry that mean we go around throwing spears at the back of our hand without even realizing that we're causing damage and destruction. You know what I'm saying? Understand the analogy there? Some of us just find ourselves in that, in that position. We just do damage with our words, our attitudes, our cynicism without even realizing. It's just who you are. Listen, either way, whether you're a wolf who is targeting... I shouldn't mix the picture there. Wolf with a spear? That makes no sense. Um, whether you're throwing spears deliberately or whether you just seem to have chaos around you because of your own hurt... Hey, we love you, but it's sinful. It needs to stop. And the, the attitude behind it is, is uh, one of Saul that we see here. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, Jesus said. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus teaches us it's never about the actual spears. It's never about the externals. These are symptoms of a sinful heart. And your heart and my hearts need repentance and they need healing. So I just want to ask you honestly this morning, as I've been asking myself this week, are you aware of the mindset of Saul in your life, in your family, in your home, in your ministry? When we break bread in a moment, we've got an opportunity to repent uh, in the heart, not pretending on the outside. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you right now of sinful judgments you've made, of areas of unforgiveness, uh, of release that you need. You get a chance in a moment to come to Jesus for healing from every spirit of rejection. He can, he can, he can uh, break off every bitter root, every moment of being overlooked and bypassed, every failure. This is kingdom life. This is a kingdom family. And our King Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. He, he heals the sick. He brings freedom to the captives. Just have a contrast for a moment with um, uh, Jesus and his disciples. He's He's uh, so very much the opposite of Saul. I, lo I love the way we were talking about the uh, how and why do we read the Bible with the Alpha group this week. And w when we read these amazing Old Testament stories, one of the things we learn is that they so evidently point us to Jesus. And the life of David points us to the, the true David, the son of David, the perfect king, Jesus Christ. Uh, and we, we see in Jesus how not to be Saul where Saul has slain his thousands, David slain his tens of thousands. It should have been a moment for the king to rejoice, but he couldn't handle David going beyond him. You look at a similar example in the life of Jesus, John chapter 10. He sent out 72 of his friends, and they proclaim the kingdom, and they come back rejoicing and dancing loudly. And it says, Jesus rejoiced with them, full of the Holy Spirit. That's what Saul should have done when he heard the ladies singing and waving their tambourines. He should, have, he should have picked a tambourine up and joined in and cheered David on. I love John 3.30. John the Baptist understood this mindset. He knew what was coming in Jesus. John 3.30, John the Baptist, John had this huge ministry. He was the preeminent preacher 
Um, he, was, he was the guy on TV and getting shared all over YouTube. The thousands coming out of Jerusalem to hear John preach and watch him baptize people. Then in John chapter 3, his, disi- his disciples come to him and say, Hey, that, that, that lad Jesus, that young man you baptized, loads of your disciples are going over to him. Your guys, they're going to Jesus. He's kind of, the crowds are going to him now. Your ministry is decreasing. John replies, a person can only receive what's given to them from heaven. He knew his measure. And then this beautiful line, I must decrease. He must increase. There's no jealousy. There's no dissent to to control and and murder. Um, This is healthy kingdom life. John knew his identity in Christ, if, if you understand that term. We get to know the measure of our call. We're happy to celebrate and, and release success in others. We're happy to acknowledge, wow, that guy's got a greater gift. He's going to go beyond me. Let me get behind him and help him in every way I can. We know what our assignment is. It's our joy to serve Jesus. It's our joy to serve others because we're all serving on the kingdom mission as a family. Whenever Saul gave David an assignment, David succeeded. It says whatever his mission was, verse 5 of chapter 18, when he got a high rank in the army, when he was given a thousand, when he was asked for some foreskins, David succeeded in spite of, of, of Saul. In spite of Saul. It's the very opposite again with Jesus and the assignment he gives. Again with the 72 in Luke uh, chapter 10. His disciples have not succeeded in spite of him. But because of his love and his care, Jesus encouraged them. He taught them. He was with them as their friend. He empowered them. He then sent them. They, they've seen and done the things they thought only Jesus could do. And, and proclaiming the gospel, healing the sick, feeding the 5,000. Now, of course, they've come back rejoicing. Jesus, if you read in John 10, he still then gives them some feedback, a bit of a, a, bit of a debrief. But then he rejoices and prays and gives thanks that the kingdom is moving forward through these little children. So even in that, he's acknowledging these guys haven't done it very well or very perfectly. But I'm so happy to rejoice in what they're doing. This is how it is with the next generation in a kingdom family. We give them real room, real authority. Uh, we give them some real battles to, to fight. But... We choose to lovingly support them. It's not in spite of us because they've kind of found their way through. We walk alongside them. We share our plans with them. We see them empowered and equipped with the Holy Spirit. We do some debriefing. We celebrate their wins as though they're our own. Jesus was like that with his disciples. John the Baptist recognized that in the dynamic with Jesus. You see it later with Barnabas and Saul or Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos and Paul or later Paul and Timothy. The New Testament is full of this family culture of generosity of spirit and release for flourishing and for going beyond where we are now. So Jesus invites us to carry his kingdom forward. Um, Like David, like the disciples... Um, we get to say, who are we, Lord, that you would use us? Who am I that you would use me? Who are we, an very ordinary local church in Crawley, that you would call us as a family to carry forward your kingdom purposes? Like David, we've been called out of nowhere. We've been saved. We've had our sins forgiven. Like David, we've been anointed for his mission. He fills us with his spirit. He, He teaches us to pray like he did with his disciples. Your kingdom come. He says, you carry my kingdom forward. You go beyond. He says to them, the feeding of the 5,000, you feed them. You be shepherds to them. He says, I've got all authority, but I'm giving it to you. He says, Peter, here are the keys to my kingdom. Wow. 
He says, you've come to me with your requests, but I'm going away soon and you'll go direct to my father and your father in my name. Whatever you ask, it's yours. This is so not Saul. He never affirmed. He never resourced. It's the way of Jesus. It's what we're caught up in. Hallelujah. And Jesus calls us from our mess. He clothes us with his robes. He puts a ring on of authority on our finger. He puts gospel shoes on our feet. And then he gets behind us and breathes on us with his spirit and says, go. In fact, where Saul wanted to limit, Jesus says that our expectation should be even bigger than we think. John 14, 12, he says to his disciples who've seen miracles with him, you'll do even greater things than these. Because I'm going to the Father. He says later, I'll send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, you're going to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus never left the geographical territory of Israel while he was preaching the gospel. Other than when he was a refugee as a child down into Egypt. He says to his disciples, you're going to go to the ends of the earth and to the end of the age. That's what we're caught up in in our story as we build this kingdom family in the line of Jesus, the son of David. It's not the mindset of Saul. This is the prophetic spirit we carry as we move forward hallelujah let me just finish briefly with David's attitude then we'll get to pray together some characteristics of David for us whether you're a young David looking to thrust your way through um, or whether you're an old David looking to keep going Uh, humility I think twice in these chapters we find David saying that phrase who am I who's my family he didn't let his heart swell with pride when the tambourine ladies were saying things that were probably an exaggeration, okay? When people say good things about you, brilliant, thank you so much. How good to be affirmed. But it's not all true. You're not as good as you think you are. David didn't allow his heart to swell with praise, but he also refused to be crushed by the discouragement and the negativity and the lies. Neither extremes are true measures as far as David is concerned. He knows I've been called by God. I've been anointed by the prophet Samuel. I've received the Holy Spirit. He knows to use New Testament language. I'm a child of God. That's what we're singing this morning. I know who I am. I'm a child of God. That's who I am. This is where he's rooted. And from this comes true humility. Who am I that you'd use me, Lord? Hallelujah. David has honor in his life as well. It's the very opposite of Saul's attitude. Do you know, in these passages, we never see David gossip. We Later, Danny was looking at, at the, um, the adultery with Bathsheba and him putting out a hit on Bathsheba's husband Uriah last week. Later on in David's life, he sins badly. He does manipulate and control. He has some, some soulish moments. But here at this point in his life, his heart is pure. He never rants about the unfairness other than in his prayer life and in the Psalms that we get to read. He, he brings his song and his complaint to the Lord, but he never gossips it around the court of Saul. In fact, remarkably, he continues to honor Saul and honor Saul's headship as king. Later on, he has a chance to stab Saul on two occasions, once even with the very spear Saul's been throwing at him, but he refuses to. He, he leaves it to the Lord. He refuses to be Brutus, to take it into his own hands, to force the chains through. David worships. We know he already worships in private. We've seen that in recent weeks. We can read his Psalms from this era. We can see his worship gift is valued by Saul because it welcomes God's presence. It stills the the, uh, bitterness, pushes back the demonic in Saul's heart. Other times, worship has the opposite effect, and we see that in this passage too. You get a demonic uh, manifestation when the presence of God is very real and very rich. David continues to worship. David continues with obedience, says he served with obedience whatever was asked of him. 
whatever assignments were given him. Even when he knew Saul meant them for harm. Or, or they weren't the main assignment. Hey, don't you know, I've been anointed as king by Samuel and, and, and you're sending me on this job. Are you just giving me a thousand? The whole army should be under my authority. No, David just gets on with what he's been given, with his assignments. In fact, he goes above and beyond. He's not begrudging. He's not just doing enough until his moment comes. That he, he goes for 200 foreskins, not 100. He goes beyond in his obedience. Let me just say to the, young, the older teenagers here, and anyone in their 20s, there will, there will always be Saul's in your life, in your studies, when you get into workplaces, even in churches that you serve the Lord in. There'll always be gatekeepers and guardians standing with their spears of the old order. Um, please don't let them harden your heart. Please don't let us harden your heart. And, and we repent if we have done, where we have done. Please don't let us make you cynical and jaded. Please keep your joy in the Lord. Keep your eager idealism for kingdom life. Please continue to worship with abandonment and joy. I love watching the, the children dancing in circles. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive this morning. Please don't go from that as children uh, into young people who've had spears thrown at them and no longer dance with joy before the Lord. Please keep on finding your honor and your worth in your identity as God's called out chosen children. Wow. And finally, David gets around people who speak life into him and who affirm his call. In the end, he leaves the toxic court of Saul. He goes to live with Samuel and the prophets at Naoth. Sometimes you can stay alive in a toxic environment because you know it's going to turn or you know, no, God's called me to remain here. It's the right place to be. God's filled me. He's equipped me. I can hold on to him and hold on to his call and purpose. Other times it's so destructive that you have to flee before you're crushed. You have to get to a place where your call and your gift can be nurtured again and protected. David and Samuel went to live at Naoth. They were both afraid of Saul. Barnabas went to get young Saul from Tarsus and bring him to Antioch to nurture his call. Kaz and I went, you've heard this story many times, our early 20s, not out of a toxic environment, but we went to an environment where we would grow and be encouraged and see what we had in us as church planters. When we came here nine years ago, I, I went to have a secret coffee with a 21-year-old Joe and Amy Stevens who were living in Eastbourne and, and made them a promise, come be with us. We'll, we'll give you room to grow. We'll love you. We'll try and affirm your call. We'll see what God does. That's the kind of kingdom family we want to be, isn't it? A, a Naoth, a, a family where young and old can come and, and grow and find room and discover their gifts and their call and their assignments in a, in a safe kingdom environment where the, the local church is strengthened. But, but we cheer on the champions that also go beyond us. Hallelujah. Will you stand to your, amen. Will you stand to your feet, please? We're just going to worship. Oh, thank you, Jane. Break bread together. I'm not going to pray a long prayer or make a ministry time happen. I'm not going to try and point all the things that the Holy Spirit may have said into your heart. But as we come and break bread, and Danny will just lead that through. If there is repentance from any mindset of Saul, then please, as, as you come to the bread and the wine, which is the body and the blood of Jesus broken for us on the cross, we dare not take this simple meal of bread and wine that represents this death of Jesus without saying, Lord, forgive me for my sins. We, we dare not take it without saying, Lord, help me to put right wounds that I've caused in others from throwing spears. We, we dare not just do the externals. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you in our hearts. We want to be true worshippers. We long to be a family 
Lord, a kingdom family that truly shines out with a, this affirming uh, life of Jesus and his friendship with his disciples rather than this mindset of Saul. So we just welcome you, Lord, now, today, and in the moments and the days ahead. If you've got things to say, Holy Spirit, come and speak. If you've got wounds to heal, come and heal them. But we open our hearts to you now as we worship you. Amen.